This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. So are there folks that are here for the first time this morning? Welcome. Good. Wow. Not so many. So a lot of regulars are here um, today. Or irregulars. Or irregulars. Or irregular regulars. (laughs) Yeah, the sun is back. That's nice to see. Um, So today I think I'd like to discuss a little bit how we get into um, trouble with other people. (laughs) <laughs> which is quite, quite easy for us to do. <clears throat> um, and I, I'd like to start with a, an old Zen story uh, between Nansen and Joshu. Um, so these are kind of um, legendary figures of Zen lore and history. Um, Nansen was the student of uh, Basho um, or Matsu and um, Joshu was Nansen's student um, so I, there's, I love that there's um, the dates for Joshu in terms of his His life, as far as we know, um, I wish I could find it. It's like 780 AD to 897, something like that. So this is somebody who, um, according to record, lived 120 years at a time when I think uh, most people didn't live to 40. Um, And he took his time. I think he started practice, you know, at 18 or 19, um, and I think had some turning, uh, enlightening experience with his teacher when he was maybe, I think, 30 or 40. He spent another 30 years just sort of um, being with that kind of new awakening or new perspective. Uh, I don't think he started teaching until he was like 80 or something and still managed to teach for 40 years, so, um, you know, take that as you will. <laughs> um, but I, I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, the two major koan collections in Zen are the um, the Gateless Gate, Wuman Khan, and the um, uh, Book of Serenity, which is often more used in Soto Zen. But these are the two major koan collections, and there's no... Uh, no other ancestor or um, Zen person who appears more than Joshu. So Joshu comes up, I think, in six different stories in the um, Book of Serenity, and a a number of stories are in both koan classics um, about him. So this one's called um, uh, Nansen Cuts the Cat in Two. So this is, this is from the, the Blue Cliff record. Um, Nansen Osho saw monks of the eastern and western halls quarreling over a cat. He held up the cat and said, if you can give an answer, you will save the cat. <clears throat> if not, I will kill it. No one could answer and Nansen cut the cat in two. That evening, Joshu returned, and Nansen told him of the incident. Joshu took off his sandals, placed them on his head, and walked out. If you had been there, you would have saved the cat, Nansen remarked. And uh, Muman's comment on this koan says, Tell me, what did Joshu mean when he put his sandals on his head? If you can give a turning word on this, you will see that Nansen's decree was carried out with good reason. If not, danger. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
So this is a very famous koan story, and often a little shocking, maybe the first time. This, how many people have never heard this story before? Yeah, it's about at least half. Um, so the history of early Zen is indeed filled with some um, violence, some hitting and shouting and... Um, but I think most commentators um, remark that there wasn't, uh, there might not have been an actual cat, and the cat um, <laughs> likely likely wasn't cut in two. By a hundred twenty year old man. <laughs> What's that? By a hundred twenty year old man. <laughs> right. Well, in this one, Joshi's the student, oh, so okay. he's still pretty young. So Dogen famously, in a commentary on this um, case, said, Nansen cut the cat into one. So, um, <clears throat> hmm. yeah, what does it mean to, in Zen, what does it mean to kill something? And what does it mean to bring something to life? So this case also appears in the, the uh, Book of Serenity, and there's a, a kind of pre-verse to the case that says, Kick over the ocean and dust flies on the earth. Scatter the clouds with shouts and empty space shatters. <clears throat> Strictly executing the true imperative is still half the issue. As for the complete manifestation of the great function... How do you carry it out? So the story starts out in a temple with the Western Hall and the Eastern Hall arguing over something. You know, for for the sake of the story, let's call it a cat. But um, uh, I've heard it said that the. Um, I think in, in any temple, there is a, a sort of administrative function, you know, having a, a building, having, um, you know, furniture and um, seats to sit on, um, administering to the members or the, the laity of the temple. So there's a kind of business element. Um, and then there's the spiritual life of the temple. So... Um, making sure that people are here for meditation, um, that there are uh, teachers available, um, talks and discussions and classes. So um, sometimes these can be seen as two very different realms of, of one kind of entity or one organization. Um, <clears throat> so some of the commentators say that this was at the heart of this um, disagreement, let's say. So the Eastern Hall may have housed all the administrative monks and the Western, the ones that were supporting the um, spiritual practice. Um, but in a way, it doesn't matter. We all have um, experience with um, my team and the other team. Um, the people that I work with or live with or understand and then the, the people that are living some other way that I'm not as familiar with. Um, and how often that gets us in trouble. <clears throat> and how natural it is as a human kind of um, way of trying to group and understand our world. So Norman Fisher wrote a, a commentary on this um, this particular case that appears in this Windbell book of um, different talks by San Francisco Zen Center teachers. Um, and at the very beginning of his commentary, Norman says, we are all many persons. Some of these people we know and others we don't. Only someone else knows them. Some of these people we like and some we do not like. Some of them we long for and others we, we want to run away from. All of this is music. <clears throat> it's the music of our lives if, if we could only stop to listen. 
Music doesn't have any meaning. <clears throat> you can't explain it. Eating a meal doesn't have any meaning either. But if there is no eating, there is no life. And if we don't hear the music, we can't dance. This is our practice, to eat our meals and clean up, to dance to the music of our lives, each one in our own way, and then to die when it's time. To live this way is very simple and also very profound. So in a way, when I say we get ourselves into trouble with others, um, <clears throat> some of those others are right here. Um, so we have this functioning uh, aspect of our mind that can divide our world, but it's also kind of working internally, dividing ourselves as well. As well. Um, <clears throat> And this is a lot of uh, what I think Zen practice is encouraging us to do, is especially getting to know the others um, right here, to include the others right here. So this, uh, currently we're in a, a practice period here at AZC, and this is a 10-week um, period of kind of more intensive practice. There's more events, there's classes. And the thematic kind of... Um, container for this particular practice period is uh, lojong practices or practices in compassion that come out of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, but I think in most forms of Buddhism that I have read about or heard about, um, there is this aspect of practicing compassion through um, being compassionate with uh, every aspect of our own being. Um, and I think the reason this is practice is because um, <clears throat> our natural tendency is to make these distinctions, to create us and them, um, even internally. So there's these two wings of the monastery and they're arguing over something. It might just be that a cat showed up that day and they, they want to have the cat stay with them. I don't know. And <laughs> but nonsense, um, kind of making a scene of it, you know, saying in the midst of this fighting, what about this? You know, and it's a way of kind of everybody's attention is now brought to, to the discord. So there's a way that in um, wrestling with each other, um, it's very easy to respond to anger with anger. So if somebody is angry at us, almost our first response automatically is, you know, maybe defensiveness, but also a kind of um, sending the energy back. And um, that kind of um, call and response is um, often largely unconscious, you know. Um, so I think in Nansen holding up the cat, there's a sort of consciousness that comes into the room. Oh, there is a dispute here. And I think that's where we, uh, you know, that's the starting point. If we don't know that we're arguing, it's kind of hard to... Um, bring an end to that argument. And this is also, um, for those not familiar with koans or Zen stories, this is a, um, a very traditional Zen way of um, make a statement, you know, say something about reality. It could kind of arise in any setting, but it's a kind of um, bringing our experience to a point um, to, to something very immediate. So they often call it a Zen word or a turning phrase. So that's what nonsense asking for is say something about reality in this moment. And nobody answers. 
And what I find interesting about this koan is that even the, the sort of, there's almost never a correct response in a koan. There's no, like, this is the right answer. But Joshu comes pretty close in this. You know, he hears about this story, he takes off his sandals, he puts them on his head, and he walks out of the room, and Nansen kind of gives him credit uh, for that. If you had done that in the moment, the cat would have lived. Um, but what I find interesting is that's not a word either (laughs) so the teacher asks for a word and the right response is an action actually so I think there's a big uh, Zen lesson in that words are always tricky Um, and trust me we (laughs) we realize that every time we come to sit in this seat, in a way, like, let's talk about Dharma, let's talk about Zen. Whew. Um. <laughs> I wish I could just put my sandals on my head. <laughs> so in the commentary in the Blue Cliff Record, um, there's sort of notes to the text, and on quarreling over a cat... Um, the commentator says um, what they were quarreling about is not known and is unimportant the point is that they were quarreling and in this instance the object of the quarrel is personified by a cat at the bottom of all disputes egocentric thinking is invariably present even though there seems to be no egotism and one might suppose oneself to be acting objectively, differences of temperament, ideals, understanding, and background inevitably bring about subjective, that is, self-centered, thinking. How is the dispute to be settled? Kill the cat. But what is the cat? And the note to the phrase, if you can give me an answer, the commentator says, Who will answer? Can you say, don't worry, the cat is already cut in two. There is no need to use the knife. Give it to me. Dogen Zenji says of this case, if if I were Nansen, I should say, if you answer, I will kill it. If you don't answer, I will kill it. If I were the monks, I should say, this is Dogen speaking, we cannot answer. Please cut the cat in two. Or I should say, the master knows how to cut it into pieces, but he does not know how to cut it into one piece. Again, Dogen says, if I were Nansen and the monks could find no answer, I should say, you could not answer and put down the cat. So Dogen's playing with this um, literalness of killing the cat. And actually, I love this last answer, which feels kind of, um, yeah. It's pretty, the last one um, feels more compassionate. And he says, um, he said, if I were Nansen and the monks could find no answer, I should say, you could find no answer, and then I would put down the cat. But also this cutting the cat into one piece. So there's a slogan... Mm. This is somewhat related, but there's a slogan in the Lojong phrases that I think most people, when they start doing Lojong practice, it was it was one of the first ones that struck out to me and and kind of started to work on me as a practice. But the slogan is "Drive all blames into one." So maybe upon hearing that, what does that phrase say to you? Okay. We have a collective responsibility. Okay, okay, yeah. So the one isn't just this one, it's the one is everyone. Okay. Um, I worked real hard on this one yeah. uh, two years ago, and, and lately when we were doing 
mm. experience with them. Yeah. To share. Yeah. What it's worth. But I, I was, you know, breathing in some people's, I would think of someone who got angry at me and I breathed in their anger. Freedom from the anger, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I breathed in their anger, but then I also realized I was breathing in my own anger also because usually when someone gets angry at me, I get angry mm -hmm. back, mm -hmm. like you said, reacting. Yeah. yeah. And so I did this for a little while, and then my anger and their anger kind of all mixed up together. Mm. And then I said, oh. I see why it says drive it into one, because it just kind of became this uh, anger, you know, yeah. it wasn't them, it wasn't me, it was just, yeah. I don't know, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Because <laughs> I always wondered why it said drive it into one, Yeah. it seemed puzzling to me, and that was that was my answer to it. Yeah. And then I read some of the commentaries and the books that we're using, yeah. and nobody mentioned that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and new insights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, inherent in blame is, is an us and a them, you know, there has to be this sort of discord for blame to exist, so to drive that, in a way to, to experience the oneness of everything kind of takes the, all the energy away from the us and the them. Yeah, Mary. Pat's comment was really helpful to me. I was thinking about throughout this is that what's universal is we get into this polarity. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a universal trap that pulls us into ego. Yeah. And when we miss all of the multidimensional reasons why something's happening, both in ourselves and in the other. And so we reduce it down to the simple line mm. of these poles that are totally... <laughs> well, they're they're ignoring a lot of information. There's very selective information that yeah. they focused on. Yeah. yeah. And, and we just forget about everything else that brings us together, that interconnects us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you. Yeah, Rich. Um, I keep thinking about the idea of uh, compassion and um, in the in relationship to this point or this this slogan of driving all blame to the one. Um, and also the idea of, uh, of no self and the way our practice is, I, I believe, about learning to get past the I and the imperatives of the I, like I expected this person to behave this way and they behave that way. I expect them to do this. I expect them to do that. And I feel like the compassionate practice, the compassion practice is about turning it from I expect you to do this to I'm not going to place those up. I don't, you're not here to, to fulfill my expectations. Uh, I can acknowledge that I expected you to do that, but then again, that's not necessarily how the, how the world works. And my response, compassionate response would be to look at you and go, um, I can see that you're doing you're having some some trouble, hmm. you know, and so it's like turning around from concern with I expected you to do this to I see you, you know, take it from I to you, you know. Or so, us, so or the blame isn't like you did this to me, me yeah. to me. I expected you to do this to what are you going through? What is this? What do you have? What is your experience right now? What? Why did you do that thing that I experienced as pain? You know, and it's like turning it from, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think turning it from us to wondering about curiosity about curiosity somebody else's about why did that person behave that way? Why is this person doing this? They, may, the, be in, they may be in pain themselves. Absolutely. Like they, I, I felt pain. I wonder if they're in pain too. And then I think there's another step. It's like, I'm, I'm totally focused on me, and then, oh, I'm open to, to what's going on for you. And then maybe the next step is, what 
what can we do together? Like, what, what, yeah. how do we find a core? the solution. Yeah. yeah. So it's not, it's, not, it's not about me, but it's also not about totally you. It's yeah. not like you are the cause of what's happening. It's a relationship that needs yeah. to be, that is, is in compassion that needs to be maintained, as opposed to, I'm going to shame you for that thing you did, you know, because that's harmful. And so I think the, the, the Buddha's teachings is about avoiding harm, and so that's to be avoided, that kind of uh, shame and blame. Yeah, and, and I'll add that, you know, we have these ideals of practice, like, here's who I'd like to be, you know, I'd like to be, um, have equanimity in the face of anger, and not be provoked into anger myself. But then we get to, to sort of test that ideal in real situations. Yeah, I mean, nobody's perfect Right. So the practice is, and you mentioned this, it's sort of like, um, can I notice my own expectation of how I think you're going to act? Can I become conscious of how that's informing my perception? So this exactly. is the practice. That's the mind training. is like seeing the, the thoughts in your head about, this is what I expected to happen. and didn't go the way I expected at all, but yeah. that's okay too. Maybe it'll be fine if we work on it you know, yeah. together. And that's the study of the self. When Dogen talks about... Exactly. The, the study of Buddha Dharma is the study of the self. So I have to acknowledge and own my own limited view, my own perception of the world. Right. Um, but if I just live through it unconsciously, then I'm coming, then I'm coming up against, you know, the other people and beings in this world that aren't seeing the things that I'm seeing. So if I'm unconscious, I'm kind of bouncing off of people. But if I'm conscious of my own part, you know, my own expectation then there's a real possibility of that kind of uh, accord or understanding or relationship. Mary, you were going to say? Yeah, just thinking about how when that happens, then we're no longer in that kind of polarity. Mm -hmm. We create the space for reflecting on our relationship. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, in, in relational psychotherapy, they're finding it's working on that repair mm. together of these ruptures, mm -hmm. that's really what where you see a lot of change and pivot. Mm -hmm. And the therapist doesn't see themselves as independent. Mm -hmm. They get they get in these enactments and they get angry. They <laughs> 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 have to talk about it. Right. And it's in the repair. Interesting. That the compassion for on each side that really facilitates the the change. I like that. So that in a way, it's like acknowledging the discord as this kind of opening to practice, this opening to connection, to and compassion. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I mean, in the story, that's, I think, in the, in the holding up of the cat, it's like, first we have to acknowledge there's a battle here. That's the only way we kind of um, move forward. Yeah. Um, uh, Going back to the story, it's, an, it's interesting and ironic that, that we consider the sparing of the cat as the more compassionate act. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that this mechanism of drive blame into one, the mechanism of that in the story is to cleave the cat into two. To, to, to cleave that which divides us. Mm. Um, and to have the courage to, to do that mm. might be this way to unify these two sides or the two sides of us or the two people. Yeah. Um, though at first it seems less compassionate. For me, still. Did anybody have a really strong reaction to the first hearing of the story? Like, oh, they actually killed the cat? Like, yeah, I think that's pretty normal. But I, 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 I agree and appreciate, I mean, I think the Zen... The symbolic cat um, is it's important in a way. Why you know what does it mean cutting that cat into two? And I that's one interpretation is drive all blames into one. In a way, it's like the one is the cat. Um, everything that's being disputed is represented by this cat. Um, and if we just you know cut that off, where's the dispute? I you know I like that. I think um, I think that's great about these stories is there's so many because of all the ambiguity built into the story mm -hmm. and, the, and the nonsensical nature of it. There's 
silly angles to look at it from. But yeah. I think for me, um, what I see is is an unwillingness to engage in the really hard work of trying to resolve the dispute, mm -hmm. and and our tendency to come up with solutions that are very black and white and very simple, mm -hmm. and and so like let's 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 suppose that it's the dispute over which which house gets to have a cat, mm -hmm. and so. You know, we, we, we have a tendency to come up with a solution that on the face might seem, well, this is a very fair way to do it. You'll get the left side and you'll get the right side. <laughs> but really, ultimately, doesn't benefit anyone, right? And I mean, what are you going to do with the right. cat? <laughs> Both sides want the whole cat, but neither side wants half a cat, basically. Yeah. Right. yeah. I guess what comes up for me in this is how paralyzed we get by... And maybe it was easy for Joe Shoshu because it's after the fact, like it's already all happened and he can have a, you know, um, you know, I like to think that Joshu would have acted that in the moment, but in a way, he's he's gets like the, the sort of value of hindsight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where was he anyway? <laughs> I, I had a couple of thoughts. I think one, when you were saying how many of us were shocked when we first heard this, I thought it occurred to me maybe that was part of the teaching device. We get so accustomed to these very divisive arguments. And, and maybe nonsense is saying, well, what you're doing is equivalent to slicing a cat in right. two. And why are you just so blasé and, and accustomed to this divisiveness, which is just as destructive, yeah. only you're not recognizing that. Or it's what leads to destructive acts and violent acts yeah. like that. And I was also thinking, and I think what Rich said earlier um, helped me see the slogan, drive all blames into one, in a new way. I think, and like Rob's saying, there's so many different angles you can see all these things from. So I think that at the same time, drive all blames into one is a way of working on reframing interpersonal mm -hmm. disputes and, and maybe getting beyond separateness and seeing more unity. Mm -hmm. But I think also it may be a way to... Just to consider the nature of blame itself. And if blame, to some extent, is having this idea of what reality should be or ought to be and mm. isn't, and all the discomfort that comes from that gap between what we would want to have and what actually is, mm -hmm. then maybe we can see blaming in general as, I want that. Mm -hmm. It should be like that. Mm -hmm. And every interpersonal dispute or just kind of life existential crisis is to some degree not being able to let go of this idea of what doesn't exist but we, what we wish did. And we're blaming something like you or you or mm -hmm. parents or, or you know the weather or whatever. Mm -hmm. We're trying to find someone who's responsible for this impossible state of affairs that we call reality. <laughs> Somebody's got to be you know, yeah. responsible for this mess. Yeah. And, and I think <coughs> this is largely the work of practice um, it, just in this vein. And it, and, and, I, it, and it requires compassion. And that includes compassion for myself, who has some idea of the way I want it to be. You know, um, God, I really wish the world was like this. You know, I wish people were peaceful or respectful of each other. But that's not what I get to see every day necessarily. I mean, there's, the world is many things. Um, um, but I think. Um, a really helpful step in practice is the acknowledgement of, of the expectation and a kind of, um, and not a kind of disowning of it. Like, again, that's sort of setting up an ideal of who I want to be versus the reality of my life. And if I just reject 
you know, the reality, the uncomfortableness, and say, that's how I get to the um, kind of acceptance, you know, I don't think it works so well. So I think actually the encouragement is to be with that, that need, that longing, that, um, you know, that wish that things were kind of easier for me. It's a kind of, It's the first noble truth is sort of accepting that, you know, I have this, that there is this inherent kind of uncomfortableness or rawness to the way I think it should be. And it's not that way. And I'm constantly wrestling with that. That's suffering. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the, one of the main balms for suffering is compassion. And there's a kind of um, starting place with, you know, then we can go out and negotiate with the world. Um, <laughs> mostly we're going to lose that negotiation. <laughs> um, but we have some, we have some um, empowerment to, to try and kind of make our mark on the world or other people. Um, so it's not helpless, but mostly we just have to kind of get into accord with the way things are as a first step to kind of alleviating our own suffering. Just acknowledgement. Yeah. So I wanted to talk um, on this note a little bit. So this is kind of related and kind of not, and see if you can make connections on your own about how this is related. But there's a teaching of Pema Chodron's that's been like really uh, influential in my own practice that I wanted to share. And this is from a book of hers called Taking the Leap. And it's all about... Um, kind of working with habit energy um, and the ways we fall asleep. And the ways we fall asleep is how we get in these kind of arguments in the first place. We're not quite aware of our own discomfort and then we're kind of acting it out on others. So um, the idea, so there's this word in Tibet, Tibetan called Shenpa. Have people heard this teaching, Anybody? So, um, Shinpa is, here, I'll, I think she defines it. Um, she says, there's a very useful teaching which I heard from um, Zigar Kontrol, I'm sorry, I'm not pronouncing that name right, um, that allows us to take a closer look at this knee-jerk pattern of moving away from being present. This is the teaching on Shenpa. Generally, the Tibetan word Shenpa is translated as attachment, but it, all, it has always seemed too abstract to me as it, as it doesn't touch the magnitude of Shenpa and its effect it has on us. An alternate translation might be hooked. What it feels like to get hooked. What it feels like to be stuck. Everyone likes to hear teachings on getting unstuck before they address such, uh, such a common source of pain. Uh, in terms of the poison ivy metaphor, our fundamental itch and the habit of scratching, Shenpa is the itch and it's also the urge to scratch. The urge to, to, to smoke that cigarette, the urge to overeat, to have one more drink, to say something cruel or to tell a lie. So, um, you know, this is really key to this whole teaching, and I find it fascinating that, um, you know, earlier she describes this metaphor of getting poison ivy, and um, that shenpa or attachment is both the the sensation of poison ivy on our skin and are kind of leaning into it to scratch it. It's like this co-created thing. And um, her translation is that we're hooked. You know, as soon as that itch comes up, there's like, there's nothing else we can consider in some way about either I'm, either I want to itch it, so, you know, and I do. So there's a kind of habitual response, like it itches and I'm itching and I'm not even really conscious that I've done that. Or I'm resisting it, you know, I'm not going to itch that itch, but it's like all I can kind of um, think about, or, you know, it becomes the focus of, of my life. 
So um, this co-creation of the itch and the urge to scratch is us being hooked. And it has implications. I mean, if you kind of, you know, to most situations in our life, including these big disputes. It's like we're hooked by this desire to have the cat in our wing of the temple or whatever it is, you know, um, and then we're kind of lost. And what I like about this teaching, and she has, um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll share a couple more examples just to get a, a sense of Shinto, but then she offers the kind of antidote or the practice um, with Shinto. Um, So she says, you know, in, in, in kind of trying to get to know what Shempa is, she says, you can notice Shempa very easily in other people. You're having a conversation with someone, and they are right with you, listening. Then after, you, after something you say, you see them tense. Somehow you know you've just touched a sensitive area. You're seeing their Shempa. Um, and in that sense, they're shutting down. Like they're all they can now see is that itch. Like whatever you just said is all their whole world, you know. Um, so you're she- seeing their shinpa, but they might not be aware of it at all. So interpersonally, like how we take care of each other, you know. She says, and I find this really helpful. When we see clearly what's happening to another person, we have to access our natural intelligence. And this is one of her three antidotes that I'll explain in a moment. But she says, we know instinctively that that that, that important thing that we're trying to communicate will not get through right now. So we're having an important discussion and somebody tenses up and we think, you know, in our, I think we've all been in this situation where our instinct is like, and I have to talk louder or I have to like <laughs> be more adamant about what I'm trying to get across because that person's resisting what I'm trying to. And her kind of wise uh, suggestion is like noticing that that triggeredness in somebody else and saying and counseling ourselves like, OK, now is not the time to try and um, find this accord or communicate this wish or whatever it is. Um, she says, we know instinctively that, that that important thing we are trying to communicate will not get through right now. The person is shutting down, he or she is closing off because of Shenpa. Our natural wisdom tells us to be quiet, to not push our point. We intuitively know that no one will win if we spread the virus of Shenpa. The virus of Shenpa. <laughs> And again, this works interpersonally, but it also works individually, you know, that um, that I get caught in some um, deep longing or need, and um, you know, to kind of acknowledge to myself that I'm not quite conscious, that I'm not quite able to um, to act the way that I want to act, that I'm, that I'm kind of, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of outside of myself in some way, and to kind of acknowledge that, okay, maybe now is not the time to go tell the world what I need, or have this conversation with somebody important too, so it's, a, it's about taking care of um, that kind of blocked, tense place in ourselves as well. And, and, and this comes up in practice where, you know, when we sit and we try practices like, you know, to develop, you know, compassion or loving kindness or Technon Han is a very simple practice of um, breathing in and I calm, you know, breathing out, I smile. So, um, Sometimes that's, I, I try and practice with that when I know that I'm really uptight. But in the way that I practice with it, I can't sort of demand of myself that I, that I drop the tension, you know? Like, um, I love it when people, like, in spiritual context just say, say just let go, you know? 
Just let go. Just let go of it. Just drop it. Okay. <laughs> That's not really so often available in my experience. Um, so the, the, the kind of being with, the compassion for our triggeredness is a, is a sort of not demanding that we be otherwise in that moment. So if I say, breathing in, I calm, um, breathing out, I smile, it's a kind of question. It's like, is calmness available? Maybe not, you know. Is a smile available? Not right now. Okay, then there's a kind of already a an awareness of what's actually happening. Yeah, Mary. I, I had struggled with these practices myself because if I'm hooked, mm-hmm. as you said, you really it feels if you if you try too hard, you're dissociating yourself from really where you are. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of allow yourself to be hooked. Yeah, and just be okay about acknowledging you're struggling in your hope. Yeah, and just seeing that your hope is the beginning of the compassion. Yeah. Um, but sometimes these things are taught so superficially mm-hmm. that I think it's teaching suppression. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, it's teaching dissociation from where you are. Yeah. And it's, I think that's so problematic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And thank, thanks to Chogyam Trumpa for this um, lovely phrase, spiritual bypassing or spiritual materialism. So using practices as a way to try and get the experience we want and to deny and suppress and cut off the experience we don't want to be having, even if it's what we're having. So it's a, it's a real danger in spiritual practice. Um, and that's why when we kind of offer these practices to ourselves, I think it's really important to do so in, in a really light way. You know, it's like, is compassion accessible to me in this moment? You know, some, some bit of compassion, maybe, but like, what's the actual experience that I'm having? And can I not demand that my life and the world be some other way in this moment? And it, it gets really hard when we're actually suffering, when we're actually in pain, to not demand that this shouldn't be happening, you know. Shouldn't be? Okay, you know, it is. It is happening. So that first turning towards acknowledging, um, accepting the reality of our life, and then kind of moving from there, um, I think is a really important lesson in practice. Also, being able to to get back to the blame idea, this is really happening, and it's not necessarily anyone's fault. Like mm-hmm. that is such a hard, so yeah. hard. It's not our natural. Yeah, instinct. no. It's like we ha- no, we ha- no. There's got to be someone because yeah. part of it is, if someone's to blame, then I can control it from happening again because mm-hmm. I can keep them from doing that. Mm-hmm. Or, and it, I think it's a way of trying to create a. A delusional sense of control. Mm-hmm. We're so often looking for control <laughs> and so unsuccessful at it. So like profoundly <laughs> unsuccessful at controlling the world and even ourselves. Mm-hmm. And yet we keep trying to do it. Um, yeah, it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of unthinkable how like how long it takes us to learn some of these lessons. Even you know, there's a lot of unconsciousness that we act out of and we, we suffer from that. But even as we start to practice or we have, you know, good friends or therapists or people that bring consciousness to what's actually happening, um, even so, even in consciousness, this shimpa, this sort of momentum of habit at kind of turning away um, is pretty strong, you know. So, part, and again, that again, always turns me back to compassion. Like, oh, this is hard. This is hard to be with my own suffering. This is hard to be with the suffering of other people. Okay. You know. So now, it, it'll happen. It'll keep happening. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably going to be an ongoing part of our life, yes. Um, and there's some benefit to kind of being more skillful at, at, at kind of being and encouraging ourselves to more and more be with the experience of suffering, of my own unmet desires or wants. Um, 
then they don't rule us in the same way. If I can be with them, if there's a consciousness about them, um, I'm not sort of just unconsciously driven by them. Well, I think you get obsessed with, for instance, in the situation of blame, with figuring out where the fault is, and you, mm-hmm. that's your obsession. Yeah. And focusing on how can I skillfully deal with this kind of dukkha? Yeah. It's a better, a better what's source. Arising. Yeah, as a better way to look at it than right. the obsession with what's the why? Know, why? Why is this happening? Why? Yeah. Why is it? <laughs> Why is one of the questions that gets us in the most trouble? Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> again, it's so, you know, why? Why? I mean, from my limited perspective of all of reality in this universe, am I ever going to really, like, put my finger on why? You know? It's a, uh, everything that happens is a co-creation of everything that exists. So you would have to be intimate with everything to say, oh, this is why. It's kind of beyond the realm of human capabilities. Yeah. And uh, getting back to the drive ball blames into one, the idea of extending the metaphor of the hook, I, I really love that mm-hmm. metaphor because it reminds us that that we had a hand in getting hooked, that, mm-hmm. that it was the pursuit of the worm, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, <laughs> yeah. the bite of the treat that, um, that probably got us hooked originally. Yeah. And not that that's entirely our fault, but we were just doing what we, you know, what we normally do. Like looking for worms is not a bad thing, but in the process of that, something happened. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And this is, you know, what I love about Pema Chodron's teachings is that this this practice of becoming conscious of Shempa of the hook of noticing when we're hooked, of seeing other people hooked, and knowing that that there's a kind of lack of consciousness, that the true accord that we really want might not be possible in this moment, um, that, that all of that is kind of bathed in compassion, in this encouragement to be with the rawness of our discomfort, with, the, with our lack of control. Um, so she says, the approach here is radical. We get entangled, uh, we, get in, we are encouraged to get comfortable with, begin to relax with, lean into, whatever the experience might be. We are encouraged to drop the storyline and simply pause, look out, and breathe. Simply be present for a few seconds, a few minutes, a few hours, a whole lifetime, with our own shifting energies and with the unpredictability of life as it unfolds, wholly partaking in all of experiences just exactly as they are. So I want to just briefly introduce the three ways that she encourages us to do this. So what are the tools that we have in this kind of um, fraught human game of being hooked and fighting the hook. Um, She says there are three kind of um, deeply inherent qualities of being human that help us in this. Um, Maybe we could call these aspects of Buddha nature. But the three, she says, are natural intelligence, natural warmth, and natural openness. So she says, natural intelligence is always accessible to us. When we're not caught in the trap of hope or fear, we intuitively know what's the right thing to do. So this is a faith in our kind of inherent goodness in in Buddha nature. We intuitively know what's the right thing to do. If we're not obscuring our intelligence with anger, self-pity, or craving, we know what will help and what will make things worse. Our well-perfected emotional reactions cause us to do and say a lot of crazy things. We desire to be happy and at peace, but when our emotions are aroused, somehow the methods we use to achieve this happiness only make us more miserable. Our wishes and our actions are, all too frequently, not in sync. 
Nevertheless, we all have access to a fundamental intelligence that can help us solve our problem rather than making them worse. So that's natural intelligence. And she says, natural warmth. Natural warmth is our shared capacity to love, to have empathy, to have a sense of humor. It is also our capacity to feel gratitude and appreciation and tenderness. It's the whole gamut of what we, what often are called the heart qualities. Qualities that are a natural part of being human. Natural warmth has the power to heal all relationships. The relationship with ourself as well as with people, animals, and all that we encounter in every day of our lives. And this is what we've been kind of working with in the practice period and some of the practice period gatherings of um, some guided meditations and kind of trying to be in touch with this kind of warmth or light that is the kind of center of our being. So it's a, it's a good kind of guided meditation to play with is to kind of imagine this warmth, um, this kind of open... Um, open arms for ourselves and others that kind of resides here. The third quality of basic goodness is natural openness. The spaciousness of our sky-like minds. Fundamentally, our minds are expansive, flexible, and curious. They are, um, they are pre-prejudice, so to speak, prior to prejudice. This is the condition of our mind before we narrow down into a fear-based view where everyone is either an enemy or a friend, a threat or an ally, someone to like, dislike, or ignore. Fundamentally, the mind that we have, that you and I each have, is open. We can connect with that openness at any time. For instance, right now, for three seconds, just stop reading and pause. So do we have that capacity to open? To kind of notice things just beyond uh, the awareness we had a moment ago? I think we do. It's not always accessible, though. <laughs> so we can um, be compassionate with ourselves when it's not available. And I think um, part of knowing how we're hooked, or that we're hooked, is getting to know uh, the variation in this openness. So if I, if I sit in meditation in a quiet room and I'm not feeling some strong emotional impulse... You know, maybe there's a sense of spaciousness. Maybe I notice, you know, um, birds in the yard or the sound of rain outside or there's a kind of like, my mind includes um, some broader uh, perspective. And then somebody says something hurtful and I like, all I can think about is that those words or the way that I, you know, the discomfort that arises here and I can't really hear the bird in the yard, and I'm not necessarily aware of the rain. Um, and I think, um, you know, in my experience, our kind of our our experience is kind of expanding and contracting. And part of becoming skillful or wise with our own sense of tension or triggeredness or shempa is just to notice that God, my my field of awareness is really narrow right now. Okay, I need to take care. I need to maybe not say those important things that I was meaning to say to somebody. So in a way, all of it's okay. You know, It's okay that we have a kind of expansive mind. It's okay that we get trapped. But I think practice is sort of um, bringing consciousness, bringing awareness, bringing presence to all of it. Um, so, 
somehow that comforts us just to be aware, to know what's happening. So I really do like cats. Um, and, uh, <laughs> uh, since this koan involved the killing of a cat, I found a poem about a cat that I thought was really <laughs> So maybe I'll end with this uh, Wallace Stevens poem. It's called A Rabbit as King of the Ghosts. The difficulty to think at the end of the day when the shapeless shadows covers the sun and nothing is left except light on your fur. There was a cat slopping its, its milk all day, fat cat, red tongue, green mind, white milk, and August, the most peaceful month. To be in the grass in the peacefulest time without the mo monument of cat, the cat forgotten in the moon, and to feel that the light of a rabbit light is a rabbit light in which everything is meant for you. Nothing and nothing need be explained. Then there is nothing to think of. It comes of itself. The east rushes west and west rushes down. No matter, the grass is full and full of yourself. The trees around are for you. The whole of the wildness, the wideness of night is for you. A self that touches all edges. You become a self that fills the four corners of night. The red cat hides away in the fur light. And there you are humped high, humped up. You are humped higher and higher, black as stone, you sit with your head like a carving in space, and the little green cat is a bug in the grass. So there's a cultural um, association in Chinese culture with, you know, in, in Western culture we have this thing called the man in the moon, like you look at the moon and you think you see a face. In China, they, they have a, the rabbit in the moon. So if you see a full moon, they, there's a rabbit there. Um, so I like this part of the poem that says, um, the cat forgotten in the moon, and to feel that the light is a rabbit light in which everything is meant for you, and nothing need be explained. Hmm. Any final thoughts or questions? Yeah. The two questions you asked early in the talk are still floating around about what yeah. does it mean to kill something in Zen? What does it mean to bring something to life? Yeah. Do you have an answer? <laughs> or would you like to say something about either of those? No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, those can be a practice right here, yeah. I mean, there is in, in Zen, for the, those that don't know, enlightenment is often called the great death. Um, and enlightenment also means a kind of integration with everything, a kind of unity. So death is unity. Um, life is the individual is the kind of limited perspective or something. Okay. Rich? I was just going to ask you, um, you know, you mentioned those, those three things that kind of children talked about. Yeah. They sound to me a lot like Dogen's three minds. Yeah. You know, especially the, the warmth about the, and the parental mind. Yeah. And the, and the openness being yeah. like the magnanimous mind. Yeah. They sound just exactly the same to me. Yeah, I had, I had not made that correlation, but that sounds um, true, yeah. Could, could you repeat that? I didn't hear it sounded interesting. So he... <laughs> <laughs> in this, in Pema Chodron's about the three, uh, the natural intelligence, uh, natural warmth, and natural openness, 
that these are our kind of um, tools to um, to work through Shempa and uh, habit mind. And he said the the three that Pema mentions sounds a lot like the three minds that Dogen mentions in the in the Tenzo Kyokun and the instructions for the cook, which the three minds are, are parental mind or grandmotherly mind, big mind, boundless mind, and then what's the third? Magnanimous mind. So that's magnanimous is more like the warmth. Big mind is this natural openness. Um, maybe parental mind or grandmotherly mind is our natural intelligence. So it kind of, it's also a compassionate, that's the warmth as well. Anyway, yeah, so thank you um, all for being here today.